And I tell them, ultimately, you can't sell something you wouldn't buy. And I would do home dialysis if I needed to be on dialysis. And I'm so convinced of it. And it's a lot of importance placed on patients and their desires and their outcomes and how they feel. Instead of us just looking at numbers, KT over V, etc. Welcome to the second episode of the Nephron segment, where nephrology is always concentrated, sometimes convoluted, and never dilute. Join a group of nephrons as we push the boundaries of kidney medicine. I'm Matt Sparks, a nephrologist at Duke University. I'm Sam Kent, a transplant nephrology fellow at Johns Hopkins. I'm Eleanor Mannon, a six-year MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Georgia. And I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. We're thrilled tonight to have two guests who are experts in the area of home dialysis, Dr. Janice Lee and Dr. Osama El-Shami. If you could both introduce yourselves. I am Janice Lee from Emory University. I'm a professor of medicine and clinical director of nephrology. I am also chief medical director of Emory Dialysis and of the home dialysis program. I'm a big proponent of home dialysis. We have currently about 120 patients on home therapies. So I'm a big proponent, strong advocate, and I'm excited to be a part of this session tonight. Hi, I'm Osama El-Shami, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm also a big proponent of home dialysis. I did a home dialysis fellowship at Mount Sinai after finishing my nephrology fellowship there. Currently working in the home dialysis unit as well at Vanderbilt. So again, we're really excited to have you both here tonight. And home dialysis, it feels, in nephrology has been something that's relatively new. We're all very excited about it. We want everyone to be on it. But could you tell us a little bit about the history of home hemodialysis and how did it all start? Dialysis in general started really, I think, in the 60s. And believe it or not, home hemodialysis was the major modality in the 60s and into the 70s, about 40% of patients who were on dialysis were on home therapies. It became later that peritoneal dialysis really came more evident and functional in the 70s. I believe 76 was when CAPD really started and there was technology for it, etc. In 1972, with the passage of the Social Security Act, that was when a change took place because there was more support and funding for in-center dialysis. And so less and less people were doing home dialysis, especially home hemodialysis. And then as we know in 2011, when the prospective payment system came into play, that was when there was more of an incentive or equalization of pay for home versus in-center. And so since that time, we've actually seen some uptick in home dialysis, but we still have a long ways to go with home dialysis. Currently, maybe 12% of our population is on a home therapy and only about 2% on home hemodialysis. 
That's a little bit about the history, when things started, and trends about different dialysis modalities. The interesting thing was that the first dialysis unit really that we had here in the United States was the Seattle Artificial Kitty Center. And uh, you know, they were offering dialysis to patients, but the resources were relatively limited and therefore they had strict criteria when selecting patients who are eligible to be on dialysis board. And age was one of the main ones. Back in 1963, there was a 15-year-old daughter of a friend of Dr. Albert Babb, who was a professor of nuclear engineering at the University of Washington uh, and one of the collaborators. And he was working on a central automated proportioning unit. Now, for those who don't know, the proportioning system is what mixes the electrolyte solutions with the purified water to make the dialysis fluid, right? With all its characteristics that we had. Now, that 15-year-old daughter was not accepted for treatment in dialysis, and that kind of triggered Bab and Scribner to work together and use that experience that they have to make a smaller version than a single patient dialysis machine with fail-safe monitors. That was really the first time that home hemodialysis was used in the United States, and it was first used by this girl in 1964 to treat herself at home with the aid of her mother. Now, there is some controversy because there are claims that back in 1961, Dr. Yuki Nose, he had treated a patient at home using a coil dialyzer and a domestic electric washing machine. That part is a little bit debatable because we don't have any figures or proof that this actually happened. You know, history still stands. And if that is to be believed, that would be the first time that we know of that home hemodialysis was started. One of the things that I, I realized by, you know, listening to both of you is that it started in the 1960s, but why is it only now that it's coming into vogue? You know, is there any reason or a legislation coming in through, or is it just that patients um, prefer to be on it? You know, I mentioned that at least in 2011, with the change in the, the financial uh, incentives, that was one driver. But really, I think it's a combination of multiple factors to why it's becoming more and more focused on. And it's a lot of importance placed on patients and their desires and their outcomes and how they feel. Instead of us just looking at numbers KT over V, et cetera, um, there's more focus on patient-centered outcomes and how patients' quality of life is. And, and so as we learn more and more about what those things are, all of the renal-based care organizations, all of the patient advocacy groups are all supporting home dialysis. And so I think that's part of it as to, to why we're seeing more of an uptick and more of a focus on it. Yeah, it was certainly more financially advantageous, you know, after the early 1970s to really put patients on in-center dialysis. And that's when it started to take off. And you started to see the downtrend in the number of patients that were on 
home dialysis modalities in general in the United States. So I think definitely money played a big part in that shift, just like it's part of the focus and the driver that's now helping us bring to the forefront patient wishes and characteristics and changing the mindset that I think a lot of patients have that, you know, the hospital and healthcare facilities are clean and home is dirty. Therefore you can't do dialysis at home and dialysis is too complicated to do at home. So some of these, you know, perceptions and misconceptions that not only patients, but even some, some of our fellow healthcare providers may have are things that we're starting to turn the tide on and bringing more light to home dialysis as a, a valid option for more patients than a lot of us initially thought would qualify. I think that that's actually a great opportunity to discuss something that, you know, Sam's question really brought to my mind, but I was just sort of wondering if we could talk about home hemodialysis may be a really attractive modality for patients. But does it improve outcomes in comparison to in-center hemodialysis? Is, again, is there any difference that we know of right now? Yeah, that's a great question. We certainly know that there is improved um, different clinical parameters, such as blood pressure control, phosphorus control, quality of life for sure, and even some evidence on improved sleeping uh, patterns with home hemodialysis. Unfortunately, though, we have not been able to show in any randomized uh, prospective clinical trials that there is a significant difference in outcomes. And I, I you know, that's been uh, several reasons for that. One is we don't have enough randomized clinical trials. When you look at like observational data, with large data sets over years of time, you might could find some differences, but really we haven't been able to get any good randomized trials with large enough patient population empowered to see a difference um, in mortality at this time. I think that's a great question and some great points were brought up. I actually had to specifically look into that before I was on the KDGO uh, controversies in dialysis. And one of the questions that I had to answer in the group was clinical outcomes of home dialysis by modality compared to facility-based hemodialysis. And when I looked at studies out of, you know, the Netherlands and Canada, Australia and New Zealand, and there is a lot of data uh, out of Australia and New Zealand because they do have you know, large home dialysis programs over there. Out of the Netherlands and Canada, really, when you adjust, there's no true difference uh, between the different dialysis uh, options and patient outcomes. But there is some literature out of Australia and New Zealand where they show that patients on home hemodialysis do have a lower mortality compared to PD and in-center uh, dialysis patients. However, a lot of this data is difficult to interpret for the reasons that were mentioned. These aren't randomized controlled trials. These are There's already a bias in patient selection to begin with, and that can affect the outcomes. And it's difficult to uh, imagine a situation where you're 
enrolling patients in trials where they're randomized to different dialysis modalities while we're also advocating for patient choices and patient education and characteristics. So I think that's perhaps the biggest barrier for us to truly know if there is a difference in terms of patient outcomes. But, you know, so far, I'd say overall, we don't have a clear uh, winner out of these different options. Uh, there are definitely uh, non uh, clinical outcomes in terms of patient independence and quality of life and, you know, patient reported RTSQ scores, right. That are higher for home modalities, but those focus on, you know, independence and uh, understanding of their treatments, self-sufficiency and other things, um, that, uh, we don't tend to measure as hard as and fast, like KT over V and potassium, other, you know, mortality, other metrics that. Um, for the longest time have really just captured the focus of the medical field. I think in any field of medicine, we always want to know, you know, just tell us which one's better. And I think this question has been ongoing for for so many years. Is is PD better? And now is, is home hemodialysis better? And I think all we can really agree upon at this time is that we just have to have a personalized therapy uh, that works. And so from both of your experiences, who do you think is kind of the candidate that you're looking for? What are some characteristics that in your clinical experience kind of predict that somebody will do well with a home modality, whether it's peritoneal dialysis or home hemodialysis? Yeah, certainly they, they have to be motivated. A lot of my patients who end up on home therapies may have started in center. So that's a good place to kind of observe their level of engagement and compliance, those that are more inquisitive, you know, asking about how the dialysis works. For hemodialysis, if they express an interest in home hemo, then I have them to learn how to cannulate themselves in the center. I don't send them home until I know for sure that they can do that. Now, ideally, we want to get patients home even before they go in center, right? And so for those patients, you know, they're patients who we've been following in clinic. We have a good, uh, reasonable assessment of their level of compliance. They take their medications. They show up for appointments. And if they have a good family support, I think all those things are very important in identifying an ideal candidate. And then I send them to the nurses because they're really the best judge of whether or not a patient can do well at home. So they will show them the machine. They go out to their home and kind of assess their overall situation and if there's any red flags that would indicate that maybe they shouldn't be uh, or couldn't be a good candidate. I agree completely. I think, you know, the number one factor is definitely motivation. You know, when I'm seeing my patients in clinic and we're talking about different dialysis options and we start having that conversation, you know, when their GFR drops below 30, we just pave, pave the way and start having the discussion. I always tell them I like to, like to think of dialysis as two different groups, in-center and home. And the first thing that I say is, there's one big advantage to each one and one disadvantage for each one. I say, you know, for home, the advantage is flexibility. 
right? I'm going to start with that. In center, it's not as flexible, right? It's you're more on a rigid schedule. Uh, and at home, though, you have to be an active member of your care team. So you have to be motivated and learn how to do this. Whereas in center, you know, all you have to do is show up. You have your access, you just show up and it uh, depends on your goals. And, you know, we have a big push for home at Vanderbilt. And I was lucky to have the similar experience when I was training at Mount Sinai. At Vanderbilt, our penetrance is over 60% uh, of incident dialysis patients start at home. And, you know, it really is testament to the fact that, you know, there aren't specific characteristics that, you know, make this small group of patients stand out compared to everybody else, but you're looking definitely for motivation. Uh, you want to know what their living situation is like. So I normally want to know, you know, who are you living with? Are you taking care of anyone? Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised um, how much of a load some of your patients are carrying in terms of caring for their loved ones or their children, different conditions, how their schedules, you know, flip around completely and, you know, trying to customize their dialysis treatments to fit their schedules can, can be very difficult if they have pets, right? Do the pets sleep with them or not, right? In the same room, um, you know, some patients really like to take baths, right? Or they like to go swimming all the time. And that can change the conversation of, you know, what dialysis modality would really fit their lifestyle. Uh, more, more than others, uh, then of course, traveling is another thing that we take into account. And, you know, and I think the point about the nurses is a hundred percent true. I mean, after you can have the discussion in theory, all you want, but then when we send the patient to the unit, just for another education session with the nurses, they get to see the machines and they get to understand kind of the visual of what they're really you know, signing up for, I think that also changes the conversation. And sometimes they come back with other questions or concerns that, you know, that we discuss together in clinic and we come together to a shared decision of what we think would be the best modality for the patient going forward. I'm going to shift now to incentives and we can talk about the, um, patient choice and things like that, but money talks, right? 2019 executive order advancing American kidney health had a bold 80% of patients will either start on home modalities or receive a transplant in their initial foray into kidney failure therapies by the year 2025. Like we're almost there. <laughs> so my question is, how is home modalities incentivized with the advancing American kidney health? Where are we with it? Are we seeing any traction? It is a very a difficult goal to, to get to. I think Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative really paved the way for some of the end-stage kidney disease treatment choice models, right? So these ETC models that initially, when it came out, it said that it would be mandatory for 50% of patients on dialysis and to provide bonus payments to dialysis providers for having more patients take up home dialysis and showing an increase in transplant rates, right? There were two other voluntary models that then followed, right? So there was the kidney care first and the comprehensive kidney care contracting model, um, whereby uh, 
requires participation of nephrologists with other participants, including dialysis facilities, to monitor these patients. And the goal was that under the care of the, the nephrologists as the, one of the primary providers, that the, pay, that the home dialysis uptake would increase. We don't have exact data more recently because the USRDS data, the last report is from 2018, so it was the year before. There was a report that there was an uptick in home dialysis use between 2018 and 2019. It went up, I believe, from 11.5% to 12%. So we did start to see an uptick by the end of 2019. We still don't have the full, um, we still don't know what the full capacity that we've reached right now in terms of the growth in home dialysis in response to this. We did have some very encouraging updates, such as uh, the update to the CMS uh, end-stage kidney disease prospective payment system, where there was an increase by approximately $5 to the current uh, pay-per-service base rate for home modalities. So that's expected to increase total payments to all dialysis facilities by about 2.5%. So that was a change that came about in you know 2022. Then there was the home dialysis payment adjustment, Right, so that was another change to the ETC model, which would result in an upward adjustment on home dialysis and home dialysis-related claims. So again, something that would motivate not only uh, you know academic centers but the private sectors as well to delve into home dialysis. And it's less so of you know if you don't do home dialysis, you're going to get punished, which was kind of one of the first alarming signs that we got when the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative came came about, right? If you're not hitting these targets, you're going to be, uh, some will get financially uh, motivated and others will, will have penalties uh, as a result of this. One of the uh, last things that we saw was the performance payment adjustment, right? Which depends on the participant's performance based on whatever model they sign up for, for home dialysis and transplant rates. And then the last thing I'd want to add is that there was an addition actually that CMS added to recognize also that there are barriers for patients based on racial barriers and an emphasis on health equity. So there was the health equity incentive that was also added, which basically gives ETC participants who show significant improvements in home dialysis and or transplant rates for patients who are eligible for Medicare and Medicaid or low-income recipients, that that would give them additional improvement points. So these are all things that came about triggered by the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative with some adjustments that followed that hopefully we will start to see the effects of with future USRDS reports uh, coming out. I wanted to just uh, ask a follow-up question to that. And, you know, the 80% uh, goal is obviously a very lofty goal. And as a transplant nephrologist, I observe pretty frequently barriers to kidney transplantation, ranging from, you know, referral to, you know, things in the pre-transplant listing process. And there have been some proposed ideas about how to mitigate some of those barriers. And what do you see for that in the home dialysis field? And, and what are some ways that you think that we can begin to break down some of these barriers to try to give people the opportunity to do these therapies, even though, you know, it may not be the best thing for everyone. Yeah, that's a, a, a 
important question. And, you know, as I was listening to Osama talk, I just thought about this started in 2019, right? What happened in 2020? (laughs) COVID. So I don't think we'll realize the impact and the effect of that on these goals. And some of them, they may have to be adjusted in some form because, for example, transplants. I mean, many transplant centers did not do any transplants during the height of the pandemic. Certainly, they weren't doing evaluations, right? And and so I think a lot of this is probably going to have to be delayed somewhat. With that said, certainly, we all are champions and, and realize the importance of promoting home. And so we need to move forward. But I don't think because of that, the pandemic's effect on all of this, I don't see us getting to 80% by 2025. I mean, it's well into 2022 now. But again, what do we need to do to get there? There's several areas. I kind of think of it in three buckets. One is health policy, making sure we have appropriate policy around encouraging home. And as Matt said earlier, money talks, you know, proper incentives. But I really think there's got to be some um, resources for patients to be successful at home. And that would include or one of the things is staff assistance. And I I think that's a big one that we need to lobby for, for patients to get that assistance at home to do PD or home hemo. Certainly continued education is important from the patient side as well as the physician side. And with that comes the fellowship training, that we have to find ways to get our fellows adequately trained, to get physicians that are already in practice up to speed on home dialysis. And so those are the kind of things that I think we have to to focus on to get there. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are definitely policy-level facilitators, you know, a lot of which we discussed uh, today, there's exploring the, the role of telehealth in future patient care. And I think a lot of that has been accelerated during the pandemic and really has been utilized in the home patient population a lot more because of the pandemic. We also have to take into consideration patient reported factors, right? And modality choices and what things we can do to facilitate home treatments for them. When I was on the KDGO Controversies Conference, one of the questions I had to answer in the group was patient-reported outcomes. And you would be surprised to hear that there really aren't that many studies out there that are looking at just patients' reported experiences of how they feel about home dialysis and what they think you know, we did or didn't do well. I think that that's something that's important because I think at the end of the day, We give ourselves a pat on the back a lot of times from changes that we make, but we don't know if that really translates to an improvement in the patient experience or does that really tackle the issue that the patients face. Of course, provider education on home therapies, and that includes both, you know, budding nephrologists and, 
you know, current nephrologists, right, who aren't as nuanced in home therapies, as well as the larger medical community. Last but not least, I think that we do have a lot to learn also from some of our international peers who have been successful at implementing large-scale home dialysis programs, you know, in their countries and what things they, did they do that worked and what things didn't work and what are some of those things that we can adopt in the United States to help expand home dialysis. And one of them, just like Janice said, is, you know, assisted peritoneal dialysis, for example, or assisted dialysis at home in general. You mentioned things about trainees being encouraged to do it. Um, for everything, we have proficiencies, right? If you want to become a general nephrologist who's interested in uh, glomerular disease or a transplant nephrologist, is there a curriculum in development for home hemodialysis or just home therapies in general? And do you think there's a push from societies to do that? Uh, yes. And some I'm sure can speak more too. I mean, he mentioned that he did a fellowship, right? So there are home dialysis fellowships. I mean, they're not that widespread. They're a year. They You have to have funding for it. So it's not practical for all fellows to do that. But that is one mechanism. But yes, there is a push. Several societies, including the ASN and others, are working on curricula and having what I would say mentorship-type programs. Or there's thoughts about developing centers of excellence, for example. So programs that have a lot of experience doing home dialysis are able to mentor fellows from other programs that may not have adequate exposure. And certainly, I think with all the bad things that happened with COVID, I think there's been some positive things that have come out of it. And just like what we're doing now, you know, Zoom, tel telehealth, that is, a, is something I think we really need to utilize and leverage in education for home dialysis. Um, Whatever conferences there are related to home dialysis, there could be a lot higher participation via tele uh, methods, et cetera. So I do think there's a push for even requiring that all programs have more education and training on home dialysis. For me, what should light on this issue was that ASN, the self-reported competency survey that they had sent to recently graduated fellows, right, between 2004 and 2008, where there were graduation years, where we saw that 44.4% of those recent graduates said that they had little or no training or some training, but not enough to feel competent in PD. And that number was 84.2% for home hemodialysis. And I, I think part of that too is reflective of the prevalence of home hemodialysis, right? I mean, we know that home hemodialysis is anywhere between one and 2% of the dialysis patient population. And that, you know, it's, it's very low. So you don't expect that a lot of those graduating fellows are going to be proficient in it because even if they are in large centers, academic centers, where they have large home dialysis programs, most of those patients are going to be on PD, not, not home hemo. If we look at the American Board of Internal Medicine's nephrology policies for training, they do have 
peritoneal dialysis is one of the procedures for fellows that says peritoneal dialysis, but excluding placement of tem temporary peritoneal catheters, which is understandable. Um, but there is no real metric on how long they should do home. You know, I, I think a lot of programs have, um, stricter policies for their transplant rotations, for example, right. For their general nephrology fellows. But when it comes to home, it's not as, as strict, but like we alluded to, there are, uh, a number of home dialysis fellowships uh, out there now. So the Mount Sinai one in New York, which is the one that I attended, there's a home dialysis training also offered as an additional year at the university of Washington in Seattle. Recently, Indiana university you know, also has, has started their own program. I'm currently working on and awaiting approval for uh, one to pass GME here at Vanderbilt as well. That is one step in the right direction than for budding nephrologists. But I think we all know that we have a lot more current nephrologists than we have upcoming nephrologists, right? And they already have patients that, that they're seeing. So there are a lot of uh, resources out there that they can utilize to become more proficient or more familiar with home dialysis. So there's home dialysis university, there's PD university, there's the PD Ac Academy of Excellence, there's the home dialysis Academy of Excellence. And then through the ASN, there's the ASN virtual mentor curriculum, which does focus on home dialysis. And similar to what Janice was talking about, there is this new hub and spoke model. Right. So that was coined after uh, project echo, which was a project where they had large centers, academic centers, basically help care for patients that are under the care of rural and underserved area providers. Right. And they can contact those experts in those large tertiary care centers for advice and help with managing their patients. And these are all things that we can do to help grow uh, home dialysis knowledge amongst existing providers. There is actually a proposed kind of OSCE type system that came out as a recent publication that came out in Peritoneal Dialysis International. It's the Objective Structured Clinical Examination. And for those who went to medical school, we, we did those when we're, you know, having our acting patients or coming in with abdominal pain and we're trying to figure out what's going on with them. Right. So, um, there is a proposed peritoneal dialysis orders OSCE, right? Where there's a formal assessment for nephrology fellows to see how proficient they are in home dialysis. And they actually have laid out scenarios for patient, for fellows to answer that are graded. Basically they have three clinical scenarios and in each one, they have to answer questions about that patient and how that manages. And they found really good correlation between the scores of those OSCEs and the performance of the fellows in the home dialysis. I haven't seen one for home hemodialysis, but this is clearly a sign towards a push, uh, to help demonstrate proficiency of fellows in home dialysis. I think it's really interesting, this data that we've been talking about, how most fellows feel regarding, you know, 
their hesitancy, at least with human dialysis. So, you know, I just wanted to ask both of you, what was it that made you decide to pursue this training to pursue in a career focused on home hemodialysis? And how did you, you know, get interested to get started in that? Yeah, that's a good question. Because when I did my fellowship, I didn't really have much exposure to home hemo, but I loved hemodialysis. I love taking care of peritoneal dialysis, but I my passion is hemodialysis. And so I said, if I can learn how to, to manage these patients. So I actually went to the, well, back then it was a PD university, and then it transitioned to home dialysis university with John Burkhardt and Tom Goper. That was where I learned home hemodialysis. Well, I learned PD there as well, but, but particularly home hemodialysis. And I sort of just took that and ran with it. I went back to my institution. I was a junior faculty at the time and um, said, this is what I want to do. I, you know, collaborated with um, a dialysis center that had some expertise in that. And I just taught myself and then started teaching others, getting good nurses with experience. That's sort of how I got into it. It was really a passion. I said, this is, you know, to me, ideal for our patients. And you just have to encourage and you really need to um, be a champion uh, for this in your program in order to see success and get patients to try it because it can be a daunting task they see what's going on in center and they say, well, how can I do this at home? But once they come in and meet with the nurses and they said, I can do this. I think the hardest part about home hemo is, is cannulation really. Um, so that's how I got involved with it. So my uh, experience with home dialysis actually started um, in residency. I knew I wanted to go into nephrology. So uh, we had a service in residency that was actually called Medicine Yellow, fittingly. And I rotated on Medicine Yellow a lot, but I actually never saw a single home dialysis patient. But because I was the only one in my class who wanted to go into nephrology, my colleagues would turn to me as some sort of expert. I knew nothing more than they did. And there was a patient that was admitted with peritonitis and my co-fellow asked me to come to the room with him and I walked in and I saw the PD catheter and it was him and the nurse and they said, what do we do with this? I just looked at them blankly and I said, I have no idea what this is um, because it wasn't as prevalent and we didn't have any patients that were really being admitted to the hospital that had a PD catheter. So this is funny. It kind of exposes me a little bit, but um, when I was interviewing for fellowships, I asked one of the fellows, uh, you know, at my institution. And I said, Hey, do you have any tips, you know, for interviewing? And he said, you know, just ask them if they have a, a like a good home dialysis program. And I was like, wait, like, like, what is that? You know? And he's like, it's just, it's just something smart. You'll sound smart. Just say it. And like, you know, and then they'll, you know, they're, they're going to be impressed because they're going to think you did your research and you know what you're doing. And I'm the kind of person that if I don't know something, I just jump in with both feet. So you know, in my interviews, it's like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. If nobody else knows much about it, I want to know more about it. And I want to be an expert on this. And that's kind of what 
took me, like really sucked me in. And then halfway through my second year, you know, I, I met with uh, my fellowship program director and our division chief. And I said, I really think if I can use a third year of home dialysis, that would be great. And we didn't have a home dialysis uh, year of fellowship back then. And really, I have them to thank for everything. They just looked at me and said, okay, we'll do it. And they wrote a curriculum and there was a home dialysis fellowship. I always tell my fellows, ultimately, we function in facts, right? And we help advise our patients and give them our recommendations about what to do and what to avoid. And I tell them, ultimately, you can't sell something you wouldn't buy. And I would do home dialysis if I needed to be on dialysis. And I'm so convinced of it that, you know, when I'm sitting with my patients and we're discussing dialysis options, I always tell them, yes, I'm passionate about home dialysis, but I'm not offended if a patient wants to do in-center. It's all about what's best for you. But I know this well so I can help you more because patients who are on home dialysis do require physicians who have that skill set, right? And they're able to support and help them better. So that's kind of how I got into home. But Sam, I think your fellowship story is really a great example of how our curriculum in nephrology or really any specialty, subspecialty has to follow the need. And I think as our specialty evolves, we have to continue to kind of innovate and develop these curricula that are needed so that we can improve these data that fellows are feeling more competent and comfortable taking care of patients that are hopefully going to be increasingly on these um, home modalities. I mean, as we're kind of getting to the end here, I've had one burning question that I've been trying to fit in this whole time. I think many times when we talk about home hemodialysis and whether it's to people within healthcare or outside, one of the first questions that comes up is how can people possibly cannulate themselves? And so if it's possible in a few words, if one of you could explain the technique or the buttonhole technique or how you would explain this to somebody. As I mentioned earlier, I really like for the patients, if they're in center, to learn the procedure there because they're they're sitting there three days a week, four hours, and, and the nurse and tech can teach them how to do it. The nurse at the home dialysis unit is the one who really focuses on the technique as far as how they hold their access. I mean, you know, it's very important that they, f they follow proper disinfection type uh, methods and, and adequately cleaning their access. Um, you brought up buttonholes. So that's been a big <laughs> controversy in home dialysis. It still is being used, but if it's not done properly, there's been studies to show increased rates of infection. Um, the whole premise of it is to allow a better cannulation process that's less traumatic because you create a track, the buttonhole track, where you can use a non-sharp needle and you cause less trauma to their access. It can only be used for fistulas, by the way, not for grafts. And it's a very meticulous procedure where they have to clean their arm, they have to soak it with the wet dressing, which helps to remove the scab. Then they use a 
uh, device or what we call a picker, really, um, that comes with the buttonhole needle to remove the scab. And then they can insert the buttonhole needle. It usually takes a couple of weeks or maybe longer to develop that tract. So they'll start out with sharp needles and then eventually can go to the blunt needles. But that is really, as I said, one of the most important issues for home dialysis is that cannulation process and um, avoiding infection. Yeah, it normally takes approximately six to eight cannulations. So you normally have the same nurse do it because the nurse remembers the direction that they want in terms of the track. So you can't really alternate different nurses doing the same thing. Uh, and that creates that direction. The idea behind it was that you can use blunt needles instead of sharp needles, right, for patients, which theoretically is less painful. Although there is data out there that says, based on patient experience, there really is no difference in terms of pain overall. But that was the idea behind it. And it also simplifies things, right? If you know exactly where you're gonna where you're gonna put your needle, it's marked for you, that's where you're gonna go. There is concerns, of course, if you're not cleaning it enough, that some of that bacteria, right, that's on there, especially staph bacteria that's on the skin and on the scab and you didn't clean it well, you can develop bacteremia from it. So that would be the the, the concern with that. But it does simplify things for a lot of patients. Uh, who are on home hemodialysis as well. And if I might add, Samira, I think it's one of the things that we need to to leave with everyone is that once you learn how to do home hemodialysis, learn cannulation, you need to have continued education and reinforcement um, because what we found is that the patients start to get a little bit slack and like, oh, I know how to do this. They may start skipping a step. And that is probably how we started to see those infections creep in. And so that's important for the patients, for the programs to continue to provide education and go through those protocols with the patients on a regular basis, not just at the beginning of training. Well, this has been an amazing podcast, and this brings us to the end of the Nephron segment. I will say, though, that I'm sold. Osama, you sold me. Janice, this is great. Before we leave, we always ask our guests, what's one thing that brings you joy outside of work? Traveling, 100%. I mean, like I said, I'm currently in Spain. The pandemic took that away from me. I I haven't really gone anywhere in over two years. My last trip was to South Africa, and that was great but definitely traveling. I love to travel internationally and explore new cities and just get lost in this big world. I really love what I do. I love taking care of patients, but I do love my family. And what brings me joy is my son is in medical school now, and he's actually at Duke. So that brings me a lot of joy, just knowing that my passion for taking care of patients apparently rubbed off in some manner to him. So so that brings me joy. Thank you so much, Osama, Janice. It's been a great conversation. And we thank you for joining us on the Nephron segment. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure.